Well, as, a, as most of you know by now, one of the newsworthy items this past week is the passing of Steve Jobs. I mean, this, this is hardly, um, this is, I'm, I'm sure everyone here has heard about this because we all have, maybe even some today, have an iPod or an iPhone in your pocket. Or maybe there's even someone out there today that has an iPad and is following along with me. Um, Steve Jobs was, man, a founder and iconic leader of Apple. Um, he died this past Wednesday of pancreatic cancer. Um, and he, was, he died a legend and one of the world's richest men. And we would do well to reflect upon the influence that a life can have. But as we, as we think about Steve Jobs... Um, he changed the way so many people live and go about and do their work. He saw products that customers did not even know they needed. And then he marketed them and saw it thrive and succeed. Um, we could talk about how he developed Pixar into uh, the digital movie powerhouse that it is. Um, and he, he's a great example of God's common grace as we see aesthetically and creativity and productivity. Um, but he was diagnosed with cancer about six years ago. And that, that led him to contemplate the big questions of life. And I want to read from you. He, he spoke at the Stanford, um, um, he gave a commencement address at Stanford University in 2005. This is shortly after he had received this news. And I want you to hear some of his thoughts that he shared there. He said, when I was 17, I read a quote that went something like this. If you live each day as if it were your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. He said, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And as a side note, none of us will escape it. And that as it should be, because death is the very likely the single best in invention of life. It's, it is life's change agent. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. And we can all hope that in, in his final days, this recipient of so much common grace found rest in God's sovereign grace. Um, which I don't know, but only God knows. Um, but I want you to reflect on this. We think of Steve Jobs as a technological and digital genius, but he was also a philosopher. Now, I would not call him a philosopher in the likes of Socrates or Plato, but in the sense that he wrestled with the big questions of life. I mean, he's looking at death. And he's saying nobody escapes it. And what is the purpose of death? And, and in these few quotes that he gave at this commencement address, he's giving his reason for the invention of death and the tool that it plays in our life. And so he's wrestling with, why am I here? Where am I going? What is death about? And I would argue in the same sense that every single one of you is a philosopher. Now, we may have a Socrates and a future Plato in here. I'm not sure. But every single one of us wrestle with the big questions of life. I mean, what is philosophy? Philosophy in itself just simply means the love of wisdom. 
And if you were to look at a technical and study philosophy, what is philosophy the study of? You're basically looking at the big questions of life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? Have you reflected on these questions lately? Well, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be one um, below you in the chair there. It's on, on page 984. Um, but in Colossians chapter 2, we're going to look at Paul addressing philosophy, human philosophy, and highlighting the supremacy of Christ over it. In fact, this, where we come at today in this section of Colossians, we really see one of the main reasons he wrote to them. You see, false teaching was one, it was one of the reasons that gave rise for Paul to write this letter to them. We see that. We, we, we studied this back in chapter 2. Look at verse 4. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So the things he's been teaching, he's been building a case because of this false teaching there. And then what we studied last week. In 2, verses 6 and 7. Let me just reflect on the words. He says, So as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted, established. I mean, He knows what He's about to address. But what is the best way to combat false teaching? Be rooted, established, firm in the gospel. Now, when we come to this section today, and in the next few weeks, Paul is going to give three negative commands that parallel each other. We see the first one here in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 8, where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. Flip on down to verse 16. We see the second one. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. And then in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. In chapter 2, he is specifically addressing the false teaching that was going on at the church at Colossae. So this morning, we're just going to look at the first one here, where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. And, and Paul was going to develop a powerful argument against this false teaching. And here's how he's going to do it. He's going to highlight the completeness of the spiritual victory we share in Christ. And this is good news. And so let me just, man, here's the point before we jump into the text. Here is the point of what Paul's going to get at today. It's this, that you should reject any philosophy or teaching that is not according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in light of that, let's look at Colossians 2. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 8. This is what Paul says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You hear this language here? See to it that no one takes you captive. I mean, you, you get this idea of a prisoner who's been taken captive and imprisoned by this teaching. And this is his main concern. I mean, he's writing to the church here, to believers. And he's even concerned that they could be taken captive by this philosophy, which I mean, should lead us to ask a question. I mean, what does Paul mean by philosophy? I mean, is, is Paul speaking against all philosophy? No. I mean, if we're actually looking to the text, Paul had a very specific philosophy in mind. 
He's talking about the philosophy, these, what these false teachers are teaching. Um, but if, if we were to look at this word philosophy in Paul's day, here's how it was used. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian back at the time of Christ, he, called, he even called Judaism a philosophy, and even its sects. So like the Pharisees were philosophy, and the Sadducees were philosophy. So when, when we think of philosophy, we think of a technical sense, but the way Paul's using it here is any teaching or system of thought is, is a philosophy. And in that sense, you know what? Every single one of us have a philosophy. For some of you, it's explicit. This is what I believe. This is my philosophy. For others of you, it's implicit. You just go throughout life, and you may be sitting here thinking, man, I don't have a philosophy, but you do. You think about these questions, and you have answers to them, whether you ever verbalize them or not by the way you live your life. And so this should cause us all to reflect on, hey, man, how am I answering these big questions in life? And have I been taken captive by a false teaching, by a philosophy? Now look how he describes. He describes this philosophy in verse 8. And he says that it is empty deceit. I mean, just think of this, this language, empty deceit. It is misleading it is void of any intellectual, moral, or spiritual value. We're going to really see this highlighted in verse 9, where we say, in, where we're going to see in Christ is the fullness of God. And so you've got this idea of fullness in Christ, but in this philosophy, it's empty. You see that dichotomy there? So it's vain, it's, it's deceitful. He continues on, he says, it's according to the tradition of men. Now let's just think about how philosophy works. You could think of a guy like Plato. What did Plato have? He had a pupil, right? And he would pass on down his philosophy to a pupil who would then pass it on down to somebody else. You could actually go on Wikipedia and look at a list of philosophers, and it's connecting them to somebody who taught them, who trained them. And in a sense, teaching, this is, it's handed down from one person to another. But as we're going to see what Paul's doing, as he's highlighting, this is according to the tradition of men and not from revelation of God. And then he gives another description here. Um, I'm thankful for Tanner letting me preach this week. He, he, I'm sure he thought, hey, this is one of the toughest um, you know, phrases to explain. I'll give that one to John. And so, Tanner, you're not here. Thank you when you listen to this sermon. I appreciate it, brother. I love you. We see this, this language here, according to the elementary or elemental spirits of the world. What in the world does this mean? Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. There, there are a number of options we could look out here. But the, the most common usage in Paul's day was this idea of the fundamental components of the world, which would have been what? Air, water, earth, fire, right? These are the fundamental components of what the world. So the elemental, in, in the sense of what can, what's the smallest thing you can break it down to. And, but then we ask, okay, why is he highlighting this. How, how does this fit within the context? Well, maybe let's ask this. What were these false teachers teaching? Well, we get a glimpse of this in verse 16. Jump on down with me real quick to, to verse 16, where Paul writes, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. So we see these false teaching had to do with days that they had to either observe or things that they could eat or couldn't eat. Very easily we could see how this is connected to the fundamental components of what this world is made of. Um, we see it on down. Look at verse 18. 
as he continues on. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Even as we think of like the idols in the Old Testament and gods, I mean, what were they made of? I mean, you could talk about the sun, and it has a god that goes with it, and the moon, and it has a god that goes with it. You could look at the fundamental components of this world, and even idols were created to worship those things. Now, here's the point. We, We could spend a lot of detail trying to, man, what does Paul mean here? But he's very explicit here. Whatever we give the meaning to elemental spirits, this is true. It was not according to Christ. And so what's essential for us as we study the text here is asking this, man, what is teaching that is true to Christ and everything else by definition is against it? And so what we see in verses 9 and following is here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to tell us this is why Christ must be central in any philosophy or teaching about life. But you're here today, and you're saying, man, why does it have to be according to Christ? Now, I realize some of you haven't been here. We've been studying through this whole book of Colossians. Um, But in Colossians 1.15, we get a glimpse here of Paul explaining who this Jesus is. Just flip back with me to Colossians 1 real quick. Colossians 1.15. Look how Paul describes Jesus. He is the head. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. I mean, we could stop right here. Your teaching and philosophy of life must be according to Christ because he is the image of the invisible God and he is the creator. And he is you, who you were created for. Now, a larger question you may be asking is, man, how do I know Jesus is God? How do I know he created me? I mean, what does it mean that I'm created for Christ? And we're going to see this fleshed out here in the verses that follow here. Um, and so in, in verses 9 and following, we're going to see Paul flesh out and what this means to have a teaching, a philosophy, a way of life that is according to Christ. So as you see, the truth, number one here, is make Christ supreme in and over your philosophy. The second truth I want to share with you today is this, is see the fullness of God in Christ. See the fullness of God in Christ. Look at, and go back to Colossians 2 now and look at verse 8. Colossians 2, sorry, verse 9, Paul writes, For in him, and he's speaking of Christ, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What we have here in verse 9 is probably the most definitive statement of Christ's deity in all of the epistles of Paul. In Christ... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What Paul's doing here, he's actually interpreting something he's already said in in chapter 1, verse 19. In 119, he says this. He says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
But here he takes it further and he says, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We have here affirmed not only the eternal deity of Christ, but the eternal humanity of Christ. And we would say Jesus is fully God and fully man. Why is Paul addressing here the nature of who Christ is? Well, here's the deal. These false teachers were highlighting that, full, that Jesus may have been a part of God in their belief system, but Paul is highlighting, no, he wasn't just one option. He, in him, the whole fullness of, dwell, of God dwells in him. He is fully and wholly God. This is amazing, and this is powerful what he's saying here. And you may, be here, you may be here today, and you're asking, man, I'm not sure that he's God. How, how do I know Jesus is God, and what are the implications of this? And, and how do I know that, man, this isn't something somebody just said of him? Did Jesus really think of himself as God? Did the early church conceive of this? I'll just give you one example here. Ignatius, he was the bishop of Antioch. He refers to Jesus as God 14 times in seven letters. And you know when he died? He died around 115 A.D. By 115 A.D., that's when he died. So he'd already referred to him 14 times before he died in his letter. So we see that, man, this is not a later thing that's attached to Christ. From the earlier church and on, and even those outside, we see that Jesus is being referred to as God. And you know what? This changes everything. Because if Jesus is God, he is not just a good person. He's not just a prophet. He is set apart from everything and everyone else. And on my iPod, we can go back to Steve Jobs here. One of the favorite songs of mine that has been playing lately is a song by Matt Papa that says, this changes everything. Reflect here with the lyrics. This is what he says here. He says, if this is true, this changes everything. If this is real, I've got to tell the world, if he is God, then I have a choice to make if I believe that I must follow him. Here's the implication. If Jesus is God, every single one of you have a choice to make. That is the implication. We all have a choice to make. And if you believe, you must follow him with your life. Do you see the fullness of of God and Christ. See it. Believe it. Treasure it. Then we go into our third truth here that I want to share with you today. Third truth is this. Be filled with all spiritual fullness in Christ. Look at what he says here in verse 10. Colossians 2 verse 10. He says, And you have been filled in him who was the head of all rule and authority. Now follow the, follow the line of thought here. If all the fullness of God dwells in Christ, and you have been filled in Him, well then you do not need any supplements. You are complete. You have been made full. You have been made complete. Do you see Paul's logic there? And why he's highlighting the deity and the fullness of deity in Christ? 
Because these false teachers probably could have been claiming that we offer you the means to attain real spiritual fullness. You want to be completely full? You want to have complete satisfaction, fullness in life? Well, then don't touch this and don't eat this and observe this day. You see, and they had all of these rules in addition to Christ. And Paul is saying that your philosophy, your teaching, your way of life must be according to Christ and Christ alone because in Him the fullness of deity dwells. And if Christ is in you, then you have been made full. You do not need anything in addition to Christ. So here's the deal. One, you can't add anything to infinity. So in the spiritual realm, nothing can be added to Christ who's infinite. So if Jesus already has the fullness of God and he is in him, nothing can be added to that. Not only that, look at what else it highlights in verse 10. It says, he is head, he is the head of all rule and authority. By nature of Christ being God, he rules all other gods. He is the ruler of them all. So you're here today and you're saying, man, what is the implication of this text on my life? Well, here's the question I want to ask you. Have you been filled in Christ? Do you have the fullness of Christ in you? And you may say, well, well how do I know? Well, the good news is Paul shares that with us in the verses. He fleshes this out, what this fullness in Christ looks at in verses 11 through 15. And I'm just going to wrap up by sharing three things with you here. Three overarching truths that Paul shares with us. Fullness in Christ. The first truth we see is there is full salvation. Look at the language here with me. Look at verse 11. Here's what Paul says. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision, circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him you see this full salvation picture you've been circumcised with Christ and we're going to talk about that in a second you were buried with Christ you were raised with Christ you were made alive in Christ he's looking at the cross Jesus died on the cross. He was put in a grave. He rose to never face death again. In the same way, spiritually, in Christ, that is yours. This is the fullness we have, that I have died, I've been buried, I'm raised, and I am a new person, and that is mine. So we have full salvation. Now, now let's flesh this out here. And here's the deal. Do you see in the language this in him, in him, in him? So he started off that your philosophy must be according to Christ. And then he says, in him the fullness of God dwells, dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him. You have been circumcised in him, raised with him, made alive in him. It is in Christ. Christ must be supreme in your life. So what does he mean here when he says physical circumcision? Now, we all know what circumcision is. And we know where it was instituted. God instituted it in the Old Testament. We can go back to Genesis 17. It was to be a sign of the covenant between him and the people of Israel. When was it performed? On the eighth day. And it was, it was performed on a mere portion of the flesh. Now, look at what, how he describes 
this circumcision here in verse 11. He says, In him also you were circumcision, circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So this ought to be cluing us in here that when Paul is talking about circumcision here, he's not talking about physical circumcision. He's talking about something greater. And even this allusion here to made without hands, he's highlighting, I mean, this is a language in the Old Testament. What was made with hands, that would have been an idol. If it was made with hands, that was an idol. But made without hands, he's hiding, man, this is something that God has done. And this circumcision that he's talking about, this is something God has done. He continues the flesh today. He says, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is the circumcision of Christ? Now, as we reflect on the Old Testament, we see, yeah, they had the physical circumcision. But we could go back to Deuteronomy. You guys remember the text that we just read earlier in the, in the, in the, in the reading, the scripture reading? I read from De- Deuteronomy 12, and it said, circumcise your hearts. You see this in the Old Testament. Yeah, you have physical circumcision, but that was just a picture. That was a picture of a greater circumcision, a change that was going to take place in your hearts. And you even see Moses in the Old Testament and in Jeremiah saying, man, what do you ultimately need is not physical circumcision. Your heart needs to be changed. And physical circumcision was a picture for Christ who was going to fulfill that and complete that and offer the circumcision of Christ where he truly comes in and changes your heart. So the circumcision of Christ is a metaphor for the conquering for conquering the power of sin which takes place when a person comes to Christ. So you're asking, "Hey, have I been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ?" This is what happens when you come to faith in Christ. When you come to him, you believe him and you trust him, he changes your heart. You are born again. You are made alive. You are freed from the power of sin. You were circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. He continues on, though, in verse 12, as he continues past this idea of circumcision, and he highlights that you've also been buried with him in baptism. Now we have another. He's already talked about circumcision. Now he raises baptism. And why is he throwing baptism in here? Well, let's just reflect for a second about the imagery here. He says, you were buried with him in baptism. And he continues on and says, which you were also raised. What's the picture here? Burial, put in a tomb, and then you were raised. It is the picture of Christ who died and was put in a tomb and raised to life. Why does he mention baptism here? Well, let's just reflect for a second. The great... The Great Commission. What does Jesus tell his disciples to do? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We see in Acts 2, Peter preaches a big sermon. They were cut to the heart. Peter, what must we do? Repent and be baptized. And they were baptized. We see in the New Testament that baptism is so closely connected with initial conversion, repentance and faith, so that Paul could say here that your burial actually happened at baptism. Now, let me just be be clear here. Baptism does not wash away sin. Baptism does not save you. 
Baptism is a picture. So you're saying, hey, man, what's the point of baptism? Here's the point. Jesus is saying, you become a disciple, you get baptized. And baptism is a public display to everybody of what is going on inwardly in my life. And so if you were to come to me and say, John, man, I followed Christ, I've repented, I've trusted Him, I want to get baptized, what would that look like? Well, we would have a service and, and, and we would, we don't have a baptismal pool here, but we would go somewhere where we could baptize you. And the word here, baptism, baptize, actually means immersion. That's, that's what the word means. And so even get the imagery here, buried and raised. It's the picture of a grave. And so the way we do baptism here at Redemption Hill is that there would be um, a tub of water. It would look like a grave. And you would actually go fully under the water and you would come back up. And you know what that water does? It does nothing. It is a picture of what has going on in your heart where you died you were buried and you were raised to christ when you believed and you trusted him if you're interested more on baptism let me just point you to a resource on our website and we actually have a statement on baptism you want to go read more that flushes this out and put some more scripture references and and maybe you're saying hey man i want to be baptized like that we would encourage you on, on our connection card. There's actually a little box you can check um, or come talk to one of our pastors, me or, or Tanner. We'd love to talk with you more about that. But this is the fullness that you have in Christ. You are circumcised with a change of heart. In your baptism, you have been raised. I mean, guys, he continues on here and he says, you have been raised and you've been made alive. Look in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. This is great news. This is, this is similar language that we see in Ephesians 2. Um, very similar par- parallel here. And it's the imagery of, hey, before Christ, you were dead. You were spiritually dead. You had no spiritual vigor. You, you were dead. You, you had no life in you. And until God's, who makes you alive? What does the text say? It says, God made you alive. Salvation is a work of God. God makes you alive. You respond. You repent. You believe. But it is a work of God. In the same way that Jesus died, he was put in a grave, and he rose from the dead by the powerful working of God. In the same way, spiritually, through faith in him, you are made alive. You hear today, man, I'm dead. If you're saying, man, I am dead, I have no spiritual life in me, you need Christ. And the, and the benefit, the blessing, the fullness you have in Christ is that through him, you are new. You are made alive. Are you alive? Have you been made alive? Has the spirit awoken your heart? Or are you still dead today in darkness? This is interesting that he says that we are also raised with him. Because when we think of resurrection, we, we think of the end times. Jesus is going to come back, and he is going to... So when I die, it, it may be young like Steve Jobs, it may be older in life, but when I die, um, my body's going to be put in a grave and my spirit's going to go be with God in heaven. When Jesus comes back, my spirit and my body are going to be reunited. This is the teaching of the Bible, that Jesus is going to resurrect, and we're actually going to have a physical body just like he did. And we'll have a physical body for all eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. It will be physical. It's not just out in some la-la land. There will, it, there's physicalness there. 
We think of that as the return of Christ. But here's what you have in Christ. You almost, you have the benefits as if you have already been raised. As if you've already been even raised. I mean, he talks about this in, in Colossians 3. Just jump forward with me real quick. In Colossians 3, 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's going to use this letter to say, hey, you've been raised as if you're already there, so live that way. So spiritually, this is what's already happened, and we're just waiting. It's almost what we call realized eschatology, where in one sense, yeah, has my body been raised yet? No, but in one sense, I have the benefits of this, as Christ already speaks of being raised with Christ. So we have full salvation. Second truth I want to highlight is we have full forgiveness. And this is good news. At the end of verse 13 of chapter 2, Paul says, Having forgive us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We have been forgiven. And here's what Paul says. Man, how has this happened? How has, have we been buried and raised? Well, something had to happen. Our sin had to be taken care of. And then we see it was nailed to the cross. Maybe today you're here and you've been exploring Christianity. You will not see your need for Jesus until you see that you're a sinner. And here's what I want you to see. That ultimately all sin is not against your neighbor, it is against God. Yeah, do we sin against people? Yes. Do I sin against my spouse and my kids? Yes. But ultimately, sin is against God. You were created to honor, to glorify, to give allegiance to Him. Listen to this quote by Thomas Watson. He says, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Do you see your sin? As you think about your philosophy, your way of life, if you don't confess, hey, I'm a sinner, you know what? You don't need Christ. But I would say this, every single one's a sinner. And therefore, Christ is the only solution to your sin. He's the only solution. There is no other philosophy that can take care of your sin. Jesus has done it. So let me, in light of this, let me just say this. You are far more sinful than you ever dreamed. And John, that's bad news. But it's true. If we were to start to just search the depths of our hearts, we are far more sinful than we ever dreamed. But let me share some good news with you. God's grace is richer than you'll ever know. God's grace is richer than you'll ever know. Think of the imagery here we have in the text. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Do you know what you had? Every single one of us have an IOU. Have you, have you written an IOU to anyone lately? IOU, such and such. You know, um, yesterday, I mean, we, we do tip out. You guys know I'm a server at PF Chang's. And so it's like, hey, man, I owe you such and such. They left early. So, man, I owe you this. And, and I'm bound to that. Just like that, man, with us and God, um, we owe God allegiance. 
It's, and, and you know what's on our IOU? It says this, God, dear God, I owe you full allegiance, signed mankind, signed John Chastain. That's what we all owe God. Why? He created us for him. But do you know with our IOU what is beside it? It's what it says here in the text. This is what's beside it. The legal demands. So I've got this, I owe him allegiance, and beside it, I've got this list of every single time that I have not given allegiance to God. You know what? That can be very overbearing. Have you just reflected on lately? Man, every time you've, where you've blown it? Man, what the legal demands of the law would say, man, you failed, you failed, you failed, you blew it, you blew it. And you know what? For the person apart from Christ, that can just, that can just bring guilt over your life. You may even be here today and you're saying, man, John, there's just so much guilt on my life. Man, I, I need to go get right and then I'll come back to God. Man, here's the good news for you. You know what God does with this IOU and this, this legal demands here? It says he cancels it. It is wiped clean. It's as if we had a board here that had every single one of your sins on it. And God comes and he washes it all away. It is wiped completely clean. And, and what, is the, what does the text say here? It says in 2.13b, it says, Having forgiven us all our trespasses. He didn't just forgive the ones that I've committed in the past. He forgiven the ones that I will ever commit till the day that I die. Every single sin, it's been wiped clean. This is the good news of Christ. This is why your, your, your way, your philosophy of life must be according to Christ because he is the one who wipes away and gives you a new heart, forgives your sin. Are you burdened today with the guilt of sin in your life? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. But the other imagery we have here is not only does he wipe it clean, he takes that IOU and he takes that whole slate and he nails it to the cross. Completely done away with. It's been nailed to the cross. It's been dealt with. I mean, what we have here is the gospel. This is why Jesus came to live. He lived a perfect life. You know what? He had an IOU allegiance to God and he never failed once. His slate was clean. And so he offered up his life and said, you know what? I'm going to die for all of these people that owe you, God. I'll take their IOUs and I'm going to pay them. He paid for years too. This is the fullness the completeness you have in Christ. Now let me ask you this. Have your sins been forgiven? Man, you're sitting here today and you say, John, I want that. Man, my life is a wreck. I've got guilt of sin. Man, what do I do? Well, let me just highlight a key word here in this text. It's back up in verse 12. It says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. The only thing in this text that says we do anything, it is faith. God makes us alive. He raises us. He circumcises our hearts. 
What do we do? Faith. We believe you're here today. You want this slate wiped clean. You want your sins forgiven. You want, to, you want to be freed from the power of sin. You want new life? Belief. Peter, he preached this same gospel on Acts 2. And the people said, man, we're cut to the heart. What should we do? He says, repent. They had already believed it. They believed this message of Jesus. Okay, what do we do? Repent. Later on in Acts 3.19, he says this, Repent and turn that your sins may be blotted out. Man, you can have forgiveness today. This whole slate and all of your sins forever, wipe clean. Believe in Jesus and repent. What does repent mean? It simply means turn. Repent and turn. It's as if you're walking a life of sin and you realize, man, this way of life is not satisfying, it's not pleasing, but ultimately it is not giving God allegiance in my life. And you turn from that to God and you embrace Him as the treasure in your life and you, you give Him your life. Will you do that today? You can do that right now. Repent. Turn. You talk directly to God. You confess your sin. God, man, my board is full. I'm far more sinful than I could ever dream. God, forgive me. Cleanse me. I want this. You do it. I can't do it for you. Repent. Believe. I beg with you. We have full salvation. We have full forgiveness. The third truth is we have full victory. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. These evil spirits, elementary principles, whatever you want to call, have no power over my life. There is no demonic force. There is no sin. There is nothing that has any power over you if you are in Christ. Because He rules them all. We see this specifically in the resurrection of Christ. That not only did He die, He was buried, but He rose. And He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding and over all rule and authority. Man, you're here today and you're contemplating, man, what is life about? What should my life be about? Let me tell you this. If you come to Christ you will be made full and complete and need nothing else because He created you. In Him, the whole fullness of God dwells. And if you come to Him, you have that in you. What else do you need? You have been raised, made alive, and He is the victorious one. Why would you need to go to anything else? This changes everything. So I end with this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Heavenly Father, praise you. My heart was heavy, full of sin, and you have wiped it clean. God, I pray now for, for those in this room, maybe, maybe believers that have embraced this, 
but yet they have let sin have power over them and rule them and come back to haunt them. God, would you remind them of the gospel that you have wiped the slate clean, you have paid their IOU, and they are now your child, forgiven, justified. God, would we walk rooted and established in these truths? And God, maybe for others that are contemplating, I mean, what is life about? God, would, would you help them to see the fullness of you in Christ? And would they come to you? I pray in Christ's name. Amen.